humans were created to be God-centered. Sin makes us self-centered. Worship alters our sinner. It moves us away from self and back to God. Eugene Peterson writes, Worship is the strategy by which we interrupt our preoccupation with ourselves and attend to the presence of God. I like that. In tonight's chapter, Psalms 103 through 106 are full of worship. Psalm 103 begins, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. And here's the key to worship. It's not how long you worship or how well you sing. It's not the quality or the duration of your worship, but it's the intensity. Am I pouring out all that is within me? Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Worship reaches deep down inside us. It it clears out our passion and our emotion, and then it presents it to God. David says, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And what follows is God's benefit package. You know, when you go to get a new job, you look for the benefit package. What does it include? Here's God's benefit package. Here are the benefits of knowing God who forgives all our iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. God forgives and heals and redeems and crowns and satisfies and renews. Man, sign on with God. He has a great, great benefit package one comment that I don't want you to get tripped up over I don't want you to get tripped up by a misunderstanding of verse 3 who heals all our diseases God promised Old Testament Israel immunity from disease but he made promises to Israel that he never made to the church God promises his church spiritual health and at times God heals us physically But disease-free living is not a component of his New Testament benefits. Just understand that. One day when we get to heaven, God will heal all our diseases. You pray for healing, you'll be healed. may not be in this lifetime. God decides that. But you will be healed. Not in this life, in the next. Right now, we're as subject to the germs next door as the sinner who lives there, so... uh, The best we can do is pray. God, will you heal us? And sometimes he does. Verse 6 tells us, The Lord executes righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the children of Israel. In other words, Moses sat in God's dugout. He was privy to the manager's thought process. He knew God's ways. Whereas Israel, they sat up in the bleachers and they only beheld God's acts. God wants us to know his motives, not just his movements. He says, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. God is slow to anger, but there are limits to his patience. You know, there comes a point when God stops the sinner for his own sake. He says, he has not dealt 
with us according to our sins. Aren't you glad of that? Nor punished us according to our iniquities. Who would survive if he had? This is the doctrine that the New Testament calls justification. Here's an easy way to remember justification. It means God treats us just as if I'd never sinned, even though I have. And if I'm in Christ Jesus, this is how God chooses to treat me. He treats me just like He would His only Son. This is a great benefit of being in Christ. That He doesn't deal with us according to our sins. Verse 11, For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is His mercy toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. And notice the psalmist doesn't say as far as the north is from the south. Aren't you glad of that? Because the earth is round, if you haven't checked lately. And you can go north to a point, and you'll eventually start going south again. Right? There's a limit between north and south. But you can go east forever and ever and ever. You can go east, and you'll never stop going east. North and south meet, not east and west. And this is why verse 12 says that God has taken our sin as far as the east is from the west. How wonderful. In Christ, our sin is gone once and for all and forever. He says, as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. I love this. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. (laughs) Sweep the floor, and it will remind you of how frail and fleeting you really are. As the rock group Kansas used to sing, all we are is dust in the wind. You know, the funeral chant sums it up. Dust to dust and ashes to ashes, the pastor will say. God knows that we're nothing but little hairballs. We're just dust balls, dust mites. And yet He loves us. He pities us. He's full of compassion toward us. I want you to to think about this. Often, I think God expects less from us than we do from ourselves. Notice the psalmist says, God knows our frame. He remembers that we're but dust. When we sin, when we fail, we beat ourselves up. We expect so much out of ourselves. And often we're tempted to throw in the towel. But understand, God doesn't give up on you. He knows that you're but dust. He knows your frame. He remembers that you're but dust. And God works with dust. Check this out. You know what happens when you pour a little water onto dust? You get clay. And what can you do with clay? You can mold clay. And so... What happens when the water of the Holy Spirit gets poured out into into these little dusty lives? What happens? We turn into clay that the Master can work with, that He can mold, and that He can form. And that we can be image bearers of God. Well, verse 15 tells us, As for man, his days are like grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him. And His righteousness to children's children, 
to such as keep His covenant, and to those who remember His commandments to do them. You know, men are fleeting, but God's mercy is forever. The Lord has established His throne in heaven, and His kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, you His angels who excel in strength, who do His word, heeding the voice of His word. Bless the Lord, all you His hosts, you ministers of His who do His pleasure. Bless the Lord, all His works in all places of His dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. The psalmist goes through the roll call here. He goes from strong to weak. He starts with angel, and then leader, and then works. And then he says to his own soul, bless the Lord. You can never praise the Lord too much. It's wonderful when all of God's people are in harmony praising the Lord. Psalm 103 speaks of God's mercy. While Psalm 104 mentions God's might, His mercy, then His might. It's a psalm of creation, by the way. And the writer lays out creation in this psalm in basically the same order that Moses does in Genesis chapter 1. He says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, You are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty who cover yourself with light as with a garment. The first burst of God's creative work was light. God said, let there be light, and there was light. You know, a literal reading of the Hebrew in Genesis 1 puts it more abruptly. It says, light be, light was. God spoke, and suddenly light shined. Notice God covers Himself with light. He wears it like a shirt or like a coat. 1 Timothy 6 verse 16 tells us that Jesus dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see. To mortal eyes, Jesus is as bright as 10,000 suns. And, And I hope you know, light reveals and light conceals. It does two things. It reveals and it conceals. One look directly at the sun and it'll blind you. It'll conceal your vision. Yet living in the sunshine allows you to see all of life clearly. All things are revealed. You know, there's much we don't know about God. But without God, we know nothing at all. He covers himself in light. But his light uncovers the truth. Well, the psalmist continues, who stretch out the heavens like a curtain. He lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters, who makes the clouds his chariot, who walks on the wings of the wind. You know, the earth's hydrological system is an amazing feat of divine engineering. Did you know that 54 trillion, 460 billion tons of water is suspended in our atmosphere as water vapor? Did you know that? That's a lot of water. You know, Jesus not only walks on the water, but he hangs it in thin air. That's an even greater accomplishment. Who makes his angels spirits, his ministers, a flame of fire. You who laid the foundations of the earth so that it should not be moved forever. Notice this. Whatever God builds, he builds it to last. Have you noticed that car manufacturers, they build their cars so that they break down in about six, seven years? Have you noticed this? 
Washing machines the same way. Computers the same way. But what God builds, it never gets shaken. Including the new life that he's building in you and with you. He says, you covered it with the deep as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains. Here the psalmist is referring to the flood of Noah's day. At your rebuke they fled. At the voice of your thunder they hastened away. They went up over the mountains. They went down into the valleys to the place which you founded for them. You have set a boundary that they may not pass over, that they may not return to cover the earth. You know, at the flood the water gushed upwards from the subterranean reservoirs. It rushed downward from the collapsing clouds above. Swelling waters completely covered the earth until they receded to their current boundaries. And here God is saying that he, the waters receded and they went, the psalmist is saying the waters receded and they went back to the boundaries that God had established for them. And that's where they remain today. Verse 10, he sends the springs into the valleys. They flow among the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys, they quench their thirst. By them the birds of the heavens have their home. They sing among the branches. He waters the hills from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your works. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the service of man, that he may bring forth food from the earth. And wine that makes glad the heart of man. Oil to make his face shine. And bread which strengthens man's heart. God waters the earth. He takes care of this himself. He waters the earth. And he produces abundant vegetation. Wine for the heart. Oil for the skin. Bread for the body. God blesses us with all these things. The trees of the Lord are full of sap. The cedars of Lebanon, which he planted, where the birds make their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high hills are for the wild goats. The cliffs are a refuge for the rock badgers. In Israel today, the rock badgers still roam along the cliffs. There's a little rock badger that we saw down at the uh, Engedi Oasis down near the Dead Sea. Also in Engedi, you see the, see the ibex, see the wild goats that roam around down there. They still roam around Israel today. He mentions them here. He appointed the moon for seasons. The sun knows it's going down. You make darkness and it is night in which all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar after their prey and seek their food from God. When the sun rises, they gather together and lie down in their dens. You know, in Old Testament times, Lions roamed around the Israeli countryside. You remember Samson was attacked by a lion near the vineyards of Timnah. We're told he killed it with his bare hands, just ripped it apart. And the Spirit of God came upon him. David, remember, killed a lion defending his father's sheep. In 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 20, it mentions one of David's mighty men. His name is Benaiah. And he killed a lion in the midst of a pit on a snowy day, the scriptures say. Lions once roamed the Holy Land. It's true. I'm not lying. Lions once roamed the Holy Land. But hey, if you go to Israel with us this year, there are no more lions, okay? No more. There's some lions, funny lions on the tour, but no lions. 
Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. Now that still goes on in the Holy Land in all lands. Men are still working. Oh Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. You know, the psalmist is blown away by the wonders of God's creation. There's no way that life and nature resulted by chance occurrences of accidental circumstances. The British philosopher Malcolm Muggeridge, he called Darwinian evolution one of the stupidest theories of Western life. I've heard it put like this, if evolutionary adaptability works, how come mothers still only have two hands? That's a good question. Surely an extra hand would have evolved by now. Every day, more and more evidence is presented to support the idea of intelligent design. That the creation had to have a creator. I think the day is coming when educated men will look at the idea of evolution the way we now view the flat earth theory. We'll just see it as a naive assumption of biased men. Well, next the psalmist, he makes an amazingly accurate scientific statement. He says, the earth is full of your possessions, this great and wide sea in which are innumerable teeming things, living things, both small and great. Now, how does a man living in the 11th century B.C. who had only seen the ocean from a visit to the beach? I mean, he had probably never left port. And yet somehow he knew that the seas contained innumerable teeming things. David lived long before Jacques Cousteau in National Geographic specials. He's obviously writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And then he says in verse 26, There the ships sail about. There is that Leviathan which you have made to play there. You know, throughout the scriptures, Leviathan, the sea serpent, is a symbol for Satan. But the psalmist may have had in mind an actual sea creature, perhaps a prehistoric lizard-like plesiosaur. And he may have been aware of it himself. In fact, and this is provocative, if the psalmist and the plesiosaur were contemporaries, it would mean that the earth is not as old as the evolutionists claim. As a matter of fact, in 2006, soldiers found a beached animal in far eastern Russia. Some thought it was a plesiosaur. In 1977, Japanese fishermen pulled up a decomposing carcass off the coast of New Zealand. Now, both discoveries have been debated. And there's all kinds of ideas as to what these creatures were. But it is possible that, that there's some still some modern-day plesiosaurs swimming out there in the ocean, you know, that Leviathan is still out there. He was made to play there out in the deepest parts of the sea. Notice in contrast to the survival of the fittest, verse 27 teaches that nature depends on God for its survival. These all wait for you that you may give them their food in due season. What you give them, they gather in. You open your hand, and they are filled with good. You hide your face, they are troubled. You take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. Every living creature depends on God for the air they breathe and for their ability to breathe it. God determines our survival, not evolution. He says, you send forth the, your spirit. They are created and you renew the face of the earth. In Genesis 1 verse 2, the Spirit of God hovers over the waters. 
as God begins His six days of creative work. And as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, it could be a gap of time exists between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, during which the original creation was marred by Satan's fall. So that in verse 2, God recreates the earth for man's habitation. It's interesting here the psalmist speaks of creation as renewal. He says of God, you renew the face of the earth. Verse 31, may the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in His works. He looks on the earth and it trembles. He touches the hills and they smoke. All the folks up there in Tennessee and North Carolina will be happy to know that the Bible refers to the Smoky Mountains. He says, I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. May my meditation be sweet to Him. Is your meditation sweet to God? The things you think about, things that occupy your mind through the day, through the week. Is your meditation sweet to Him? He says, I will be glad in the Lord. My sinners, may sinners be consumed from the earth and the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. And you know the Hebrew word for praise the Lord. It's an interesting word. It's pronounced the very same way in every single language. You know what it is? Hallelujah. Hallel or praise. Yah. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. It's the universal word for praise. Max scored the winning goal of the hockey game today. 20 seconds left on the clock. Score tied 4-4. Four to four. Comes flying down the left side. Puts a slap shot right in the up corner of the net. And I'm shouting, Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. It's kind of one of those things where, you know, you get real excited. Something happens that, that you really want to rejoice in. You get all excited about it. It's just natural to, to shout out, Hallelujah. You're saying, Praise the Lord. In Psalm 104, God is seen as the creator of nature. Now, in Psalm 105, He is portrayed as the creator of a nation. Creator of nature, creator of a nation. Psalms 105 and 106, they provide a history of the nation Israel. And what better way to remember history than to set it to music? This is what the psalmist does. He sets history to music. This is still an effective way of teaching, by the way. In fact, there's a clever website. It's called songsforteaching.com. And they got all kinds of different songs. I was kind of playing around with that this week, and And here's a way to teach your students about the north central states of the United States of America. We'll play a little clip. There you go. Okay, that's it. Nebraska, I got a shiver. The state has more miles of river. (laughs) Well, you know, they're just putting history to music and you learn it. These sweet little songs the kids sing these days, they put in the history to music and it's helping the kids learn about their states. Now, this is what the psalmist does, sort (laughs) of. He takes Hebrew history and he turns it into a song. Psalm 105. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. 
make known his deeds among the peoples. For Psalm, I'm sorry, First Chronicles 16 is a psalm of thanksgiving that was written by David when he brought the ark up to Jerusalem. And if you go back and study that psalm, you'll notice that it splices together two psalms from the book of Psalms. The second half of First Chronicles 16 is Psalm 96. The first half constitutes the first 15 verses here of Psalm 105. Now, it's interesting. In the Psalms, the authors of these songs are anonymous, but according to 1 Chronicles, they were written by David. And it's interesting that in a sense here, David is redoing a psalm. I mean, he wrote this psalm in 1 Chronicles 16. Now he's redoing it. He's reworking it. And I think some songs deserve to be sung over and over and over again. They need to be redone. We, we learn from them through repetition. I believe some sermons need to be retaught again and again. He says, sing to him, sing psalms to him, talk of all his wondrous works. Do you do that when you get together with friends? Do you talk of God's wondrous works or do you sit around and gossip about your neighbor and complain about your lumbago? Or do you talk of God's wondrous works. Glory in His holy name. Let the hearts of those rejoice who seek the Lord. Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His face forevermore. John Newton wrote a short refrain that goes so well with the psalmist's thoughts here. He says, Weak is the effort of our heart and cold our warmest thoughts. But when we see Thee as Thou art, we'll praise Thee. As we ought. I like that. Remember, worship is the interruption of our self-centeredness. You know, we can go through life in a self-obsessed fog if we're not careful. Where all we see, all we focus on is ourselves. This is why we need to think and talk and seek after God. I love this. When we see thee as thou art, we'll praise thee as we ought. We're to seek His face and we're to remember His works. Remember His marvelous works which He has done, His wonders and the judgments of His mouth. O seed of Abraham, His servant, you children of Jacob, His chosen ones. And here the psalmist begins the history of Israel. He begins with Abraham. This was the man that God made the covenant with Abraham with his son Isaac, with his grandson Jacob, whose name became Israel, and then to Jacob's 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. And remember God's covenant with Abraham. A little review from this morning. As we talked about today, the Abrahamic covenant is the one of the most strategic passages in all of the Bible. It includes three promises. You remember what they were? A chunk of land, a nation from Abraham's loins, And from that nation, salvation will come to the world through Jesus. Here's the shorthand version. God promises them land, nation, blessing, or sod, seed, and salvation. The sod is the land that God has given. That's why it's so important. God cares about that piece of land over there. He promised it to Abraham. The people of Israel are blessed because they came from Abraham's loins. They're the fulfillment of the covenant. And through The nation Israel, ultimately Jesus, salvation has come to all generations. An important, important covenant. Really, the rest of the Bible is really just sort of the working out of the Abrahamic covenant. Verse 7, 
He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers His covenant forever. God takes His covenant seriously, doesn't He? The word which He commanded for a thousand generations. That's a long time. The covenant which He made with Abraham in His oath to Isaac and confirmed it to Jacob as a statute to Israel as an everlasting covenant. That's even longer than a thousand generations. Notice the duration. Everlasting. Despite foreign policy efforts, God's ancient agreements with Abraham should still be the guiding principles in the Middle East negotiations today. It was an everlasting covenant. As far as God in heaven is concerned, the terms haven't changed. And here are the parameters of the agreement that they're to remember. Saying, to you I will give the land of Canaan as the allotment of your inheritance. Understand, the land of Canaan never belonged to the Palestinians. Nor ultimately does it belong to the Jews. Understand, throughout the Bible, God calls Samaria and Judea my land. This land belongs to God. And God chose to give it to Abraham and to his heirs. If it belongs to God, he can give it to whomever he pleases. And this is agreed upon, interestingly enough, by both Jews and Muslims alike. You know, the difference in their interpretation is who constitutes Abraham's heirs. Here's a little clue. Muslims pray to the God of Abraham, Ishmael, and Isaac. Jews and Christians pray to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Here's the bottom line in the Middle East conflict today. 280 million Muslims misinterpret Abraham's family tree. As far as God is concerned, Ishmael is an illegitimate son. Isaac was the promised son, the promised son that God made to Abraham and Sarah. And therefore, it is through Isaac and his descendants, they become the heirs of the covenant. God promises Abraham the land, and then he promises him a nation, sod and seed. Verse 12, when they were few in number, indeed very few, and strangers in it, <laughs> when it, Isaac took his family down to Egypt, remember, there were just 70 plus people that went with him. They were sort of an inconsequential caravan that rode into the uh, Nile Basin. When they went from one nation to another, from one kingdom to another, he permitted no one to do them wrong. Yes, he rebuked kings for their sake, saying, Do not touch my anointed ones, and do my prophets no harm. You remember God saved Sarah from the Pharaoh's lustful clutches. I mean, she was 90 years old, but she was still a, a bombshell, man. She was a beauty. And God cursed the Pharaoh for having, he took her, and, and God cursed the Pharaoh's house for having taken another man's wife. And finally it dawned on him, and, and, and she was given back. God saved her life. You know, in a similar story, he saved Isaac's wife, Rebekah, from the Philistine king. The psalmist recounts other examples of God's deliverance. He says, moreover, he called for a famine in the land. He destroyed all the provision of bread. He sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They hurt his feet with fetters. 
He was laid in irons until the time that his word came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. And boy, Joseph passed the test with flying colors, didn't he? He remained faithful to God before Potiphar, before his seductive wife who tried to lure him in. And before the the Pharaoh and the other men there in the royal prison, in all these situations, Joseph remained loyal to God. Finally, the king sent and released him. The ruler of the people let him go free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions to bind his princes at his pleasure and teach his elders wisdom. Israel also came into Egypt. Remember, there was a region-wide famine and Israel's lack of faith in God's provision sending packing to Egypt. The move was supposed to be temporary, but we're told in Jacob dwelt in the land of Ham. He dwelt there for 400 years, actually over 400 years. And in Egypt, God increased His people greatly and made them stronger than their enemies. He turned their heart to hate His people, to deal craftily with His servants. Remember, the Pharaoh had favored Joseph, but succeeding generations of Egyptians, they turned the Israelites into slaves. Finally, God heard their cries, and He sent Moses, His servant, and Aaron, whom He had chosen. They performed His signs among them, and wonders in the land of Ham or Egypt. He sent darkness and made it dark. And they did not rebel against His word. He turned their waters into blood and killed their fish. Their land abounded with frogs, even in the chambers of their kings. And the Egyptians went in at night to go to sleep and they turned down their covers and frogs had filled their bed. It was totally torture. Totally. And the Egyptians, they got tired of these frogs. They just wanted to croak. And remember the Pharaoh, he came to Moses and he told him, probably with a little frog in his throat, he told him that he would set the Hebrews free. But then when it came time for the release, he relented. And so God kept up the pressure. Verse 31, he spoke. And there came swarms of flies. Swarms of flies. Man, think of a picnic in Macon on a hot summer day. (laughs) And lice in all their territory. And this just wasn't head lice that you can treat with some medicated shampoo. This was nasty, itchy, whole body, blood-sucking lice. This was a lousy experience for the Egyptians to be in. Verse 32. He gave them hail for rain and flaming fire in their land. Thunderstorms complete with these huge hailstones and these lightning strikes cover the land of Egypt. He struck their vineyards also and their fig trees and splintered the trees of their territory. He spoke and locusts came. Young locusts without number and ate up all the vegetation in their land and devoured the fruit of their ground. And yet despite these nine different plagues, the hard-hearted and stiff-necked Pharaoh, he refused to capitulate. And so finally God pulled the trump card out of the deck. He also destroyed all the firstborn in their land, the first of all their strength. You, You remember, God had considered Israel the nation Israel, to be his firstborn. 
Of all the nations of the world, Israel was God's firstborn. Israel had the privilege. Israel was the, the heir. And since the Egyptians had taken God's firstborn from him, God in turn takes his firstborn or their firstborn from them. The death plague came that night and the firstborn in all the Egyptian families was struck dead. Yet God protected those who had faith in his word. In the homes where the blood was applied to the doorpost, death passed over those homes and the firstborn was spared, thus the Passover. But the Pharaoh's stubbornness cost him his own son. God also brought them out with silver and gold and there was none feeble among his tribes. In other words, Israel got parting gifts from their captors. Egypt was glad when they departed, for the fear of them had fallen upon them. And you know, before I go on, I, I want to say one more thing. You know, I made the comment earlier, I just feel like God wants me to say this. I made the comment earlier that the Pharaoh's stubbornness cost him his own son. Here's what I want to say. Dad, don't let your stubbornness cost you your son. I think that speaks to someone tonight. Well, he spread a cloud for a covering and fire to give light in the night. The people asked, and he brought quail and satisfied them with the bread of heaven, the manna. He opened the rock and water gushed out and ran in the dry places like a river, for he remembered his holy promise and Abraham his servant. In other words, God's covenant was still in force. He brought out His people with joy, His chosen ones with gladness. He gave them the lands of the Gentiles and they inherited the labor of the nations. But notice, God saves us so we can serve Him. He says He, he did all this that they might observe His statutes and keep His laws. Hallelujah. Well, Psalm 105 describes God's treatment of Israel. Whereas Psalm 106 now describes Israel's treatment of God. And here is where it all gets ugly. As the previous psalm described, God was faithful to His people, but in contrast, Israel was faithless toward God. Psalm 106 begins, Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His mercy endures forever. Who can utter the mighty acts of the Lord? Who can declare all His praise? Blessed are those who keep justice and he who does righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, with the favor you have toward your people. O visit me with your salvation, that I may see the benefit of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. But here is where the history turns sour. We have sinned with our fathers. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedly. Our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They did not remember the multitude of your mercies, but they rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. You remember the mixed multitude? They wanted to retreat to Egypt. Old Edgar G. Robinson, the little twerp, Moses, Moses. You remember that? 
You want to just walk up to your television and slap him. Slap him silly. Moses, Moses, let's go back to Egypt. Understand this. Fear is always easier than faith. Turning back, not pressing forward, seemed to be the prudent move. And you know, it still seems to be the prudent move. And yet that's never really true. God wants us to trust Him. God wants us to move forward. God wants us to have faith. He doesn't want us to be motivated by fear and tempt Him with our disobedience. Nevertheless, He saved them for His name's sake that He might make His mighty power known. He rebuked the Red Sea also and it dried up. So He led them through the depths as through the wilderness. He saved them from the hand of Him who hated them and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. The waters covered their enemies. There was not one of them left. Egypt drowned as the sea folded up on top of them. Then they believed His words. They sang His praise. You know, for a moment, they were believers. But their faith was short-lived. Verse 13, they soon forgot His works. They did not wait for His counsel. You know, Israel fell victim to two sins. Unbelief and forgetfulness. And it's interesting how one feeds the other. I mean, forget what God has done in your past and you'll be less inclined to trust Him in your future. Faith always has good recall. It never forgets God's past faithfulness. John Bunyan wrote a classic book called Pilgrim's Progress. Maybe you've read it. It's an allegory of the challenges that the Christian faces in his life. And guess where Bunyan says the Christian experienced his severest struggle? Guess what location, what scene prompted his his greatest challenge? Well, Bunyan writes, In a narrow passage, just beyond forgetful green. Indeed, that place is the most dangerous place in all these parts. For if at any time the pilgrims meet with any fall, it is when they forget what favors they have received. Understand this. The place along your path that is most dangerous for you and your faith is that narrow passage just beyond forgetful green. It's when you forget God's blessings. That's when you're tempted to sin. That's when you're tempted to go back to Egypt. Return to the past life. Once you've forgotten God's past faithfulness, you are headed for failure. Well, they forgot God's works and they lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tested God in the desert. And He gave them their request but sent leanness into their soul. Isn't that amazing? God filled their belly, but He sent leanness into their soul. Be careful when you start lusting for material things. When you want that raise, when you got to buy that new appliance, when you need that big screen TV, when you want that new car, and your life becomes all about accumulating material things, sometimes God will bless you. He will bless you with the material things you look for, but He'll also with it send leanness into your soul. You know, they had a full belly. 
but they, they had a shallow spiritual experience, a spiritual life. God was teaching them that physical fullness is no substitute for spiritual fullness. It'll never satisfy physical things, material things will never satisfy spiritual needs. Hey, better to be lean physically, but to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, when they envied Moses in the camp, and Aaron, the saint of the Lord, boy, he sure didn't act like a saint back in uh, the Old Testament there, did he? I mean, Aaron was the guy who made the golden calf. And yet here, here we're told, the psalmist says that he was, he's causing the saint of the Lord. I find that interesting. When they envied Moses in the camp and Aaron, the saint of the Lord, the earth opened up and swallowed Dathan and covered the faction of Abiram. Now, church members, they criticize church leaders for various reasons. Sometimes the criticism is legitimate. At other times, it's based on false accusation or on biased speculation. And there are times when it's grounded in just sheer jealousy. You know, over the years, I'll tell you, some of my most vocal critics have been those men that God called to be pastors themselves, but for whatever reason, shirked God's calling. And then they vented their angst and their discontentment and their frustration on me, you know, I'm doing what they know they should be doing. You know, you see this phenomenon at the Braves game every night. You know, the bleacher bum who screams at the shortstop for making an error. Just because he always wanted to play ball himself. But his lack of ability or his lack of wherewithal, you know, never gave him that opportunity. And so rather than, than just do, it's easier to criticize the person who does. In reality, he's jealous of the person who's living out his own dream. Dathan, Abiram, and Korah were jealous of Moses and Aaron. They questioned how he had taken so much authority upon himself. In their eyes, Moses had stepped way out of line. You know, he, he, had, he had taken too much upon himself. As it turned out, though, that's not how God sees leadership. Throughout the Bible, God lays His hand on one man or a few men, and He uses them to lead His people, not in a vacuum, not without accountability, but not by committee either. God uses men like Moses to lead His people. And on that day in the desert, God left no room here for ambiguity or for debate over this important issue. Notice how God deals with Moses' critics. A fire was kindled in their company. The flame burned up the wicked. In addition, the ground opened up and swallowed Moses' critics. You know, here they said the flame burned up the wicked. As Donald Trump would say, you're fired. You watch that show? Kathy does. I don't really watch that show. I just drift into the living room and want to spend some time with my wife and find out what she's doing. You're fired. Man, on that day, on that day, God made the leader pretty clear, didn't he? 
pretty clear. The ground opens up, swallows up the critics, fire comes from heaven, burns up the wicked. I think Moses ought to be the pastor. Ah, oh, so do I. Verse 19, the Hebrews made a calf in Horeb and worshipped the molded image. Thus they changed their glory into the image of an ox that eats grass. Now, now why does it say that they changed their glory? It was God that represented, they represented with the image of an ox. But they changed their glory into an ox because humans bear God's image. Ultimately, how we see God is how we see ourselves. We're a reflection of God. And so they represented God as an ox and and they defiled their glory. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, awesome things by the Red Sea. Therefore, he said that he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood before him in the breach to turn away his wrath, lest he destroy them. Now God spared Israel after making the golden calf because of Moses' intercession. And think about this. A few weeks earlier, they tried to strip Moses of their leadership, of his leadership. They had said that Moses had taken too much on himself. Good thing they didn't succeed. Because the fact that Moses was their leader and Moses was in place and Moses was a man of God and he was in contact with God, that's what ended up saving them. Because Moses intercedes for them and God spares them. In the end, they were glad that Moses was their leader. Understand, the man who follows God won't always be understood. And he won't always be popular. His approval rating will dip from time to time. Man, you can't follow God and always please the crowd. But I'm telling you, in a crisis, you want a man who has faith and who has passion and who loves people and who knows God. Verse 24, then they despised the pleasant land, that is the land of Canaan, that land flowing with milk and honey, the pleasant land. They did not believe his word, but complained in their tents and did not heed the voice of the Lord. Therefore, he raised up his hand in an oath against them to overthrow them in the wilderness to overthrow their descendants among the nations and to scatter them in the lands. They joined themselves also to Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices made to the dead. Imagine how far they've fallen. They worship idols. They conduct seances. God's people engage in occult activity. Thus they provoked Him to anger with their deeds and the plague broke out among them. And then Phinehas stood up and intervened. And the plague was stopped. You remember this Phineas? This is a cool guy. This was a tough guy. I mean, Phineas was the priest. And when he saw the Hebrew man take the little Moabite babe into his tent, they were hooking up in direct defiance to God's commands. And they thought nothing of it. Man, just friends with benefits, man. Phineas walks over, he grabs a javelin, he walks into the tent, and man, boom! He turns them both into shish kebabs. And notice this. And that was accounted to him for righteousness to all generations forevermore. 
That's what was said of Abraham after he believed in God's promise. It was accounted to him for righteousness. That's, that's really interesting. A lot I could say about that, but let, I'll leave it at this. God was pleased with Phineas' righteous zeal. They angered him also at the waters of strife, so that it went ill with Moses on account of them, because they rebelled against his spirit, so that he spoke rashly with his lips. Now Moses got angry with this ungrateful people, and he became rash, and he struck the rock when he should have spoken to it. And notice this. Leaders are not immune to God's judgment. God holds leaders accountable for how they treat people. And I know this as well. That we can't get rash and we can't get impatient. And we can't say mean or cruel things. We have, we have to be careful. Moses got angry and he let his temper get the best of him. And, and it cost him. There, there are pitfalls and dangers facing a leader. They did not destroy the peoples concerning whom the Lord had commanded them, but they mingled with the Gentiles and learned their works. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. Boy, Canaanite society was one of the most morally perverse and spiritually polluted cultures to ever appear on planet Earth. God actually raised up Israel as an instrument of His judgment. His desire was to wipe their perversion off the face of the planet and from the memory of men. But Israel failed to take the radical action that God commanded. Rather than kill the inhabitants of the land, what they did was mingle among them and make alliances and tolerate them. And tragically, the Israelites were corrupted by the evil that they tolerated. Guys, this is how evil often works. What you tolerate in others usually comes home to roost in you. It's called reverse evangelism. Be careful who you hang out with, what you tolerate in others. Sometimes you can develop an affinity for it yourself. Verse 37. Then they even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons and shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. They adopted the pagans' form of child sacrifice. I think this happens today when churches tolerate abortion. And the land was polluted with blood, thus they were defiled by their own works and played the harlot by their own deeds. Therefore the wrath of the Lord was kindled against His people so that He abhorred His own inheritance. And He gave them into the hand of the Gentiles and those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies also oppressed them and they were brought into subjection under their hand. Many times He delivered them, but they rebelled in their counsel and were brought low for their iniquity. Over and over, this cycle was repeated. They would sin, God would judge them, they would repent, God would save them, then they would sin again, and the cycle would repeat. Nevertheless, He regarded their affliction when He heard their cry, and for their sake He remembered His covenant. And again, notice the power of God's covenant. God's plan to redeem us is relentless, God pursues, and He pursues, and He pursues, and He pursues. Nothing can stand in the way of His covenant. 
And God relented according to the multitude of His mercies. He also made them to be pitied by all those who carried them away captive. Once again, God has mercy on them, even in exile. And He closes the psalm, Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the Gentiles to give thanks to Your holy name, to triumph in Your praise. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting and let all the people say amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. There we have it. Now if you notice, the Psalms are divided into five books. Which means that as of tonight, we have covered the first four books of the Psalms. Psalms. 